Hi everyone, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I am your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today we're talking about the science of COVID and its effect on pregnancy. To have this conversation, I have Dr. Marta Perez. She is a board-certified OBGYN and assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at WashU School of Medicine in St. Louis. Dr. Perez has developed a public educational Instagram account where people can find real evidence-based information about reproductive care, especially contraception, menstruation, pregnancy, and postpartum. She offers some amazing information in this conversation, so I think you're going to quite enjoy that. But before we get to that, I wanted to say thank you to all the students that continue to reach out and let me know how much the podcast and our online classes have meant to them. This has been a challenging time for a lot of us, and we had to do a quick pivot to bring everything online. And it just really tickles me when I hear that what we're doing is continuing to make an impact in people's lives. So I wanted to share an an email that I got literally today from Stephanie. And she says, my time spent with you virtually in class was a lifeline for me for the past nine months. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for the support, education, and space you offered so generously to me and the PYC community during quarantine. I honestly do not know what I would have done without your guidance and support. Because of your work in class, the information in your podcast, and the many resources you provide, I felt so empowered when I entered that labor and delivery room. And when we transitioned to recovery, I was able to advocate for myself, connect with my partner, and apply the breathwork and positions we did in class. I fully believe that my labor was a positive experience because of our work together for the last nine months. So I wanted to say thank you, Stephanie, for sharing those words with me. It really, it really just makes me happy and just makes me feel confident that what we do in class online, even though we're not in the same room, it can really impact people. And that's really why we do this. That's why I have the podcast. That's why I continue the classes. It's because I believe that birth matters and I believe it impacts us and how we continue our lives and what we share with our children. So I'm so moved that our work together made a difference in your life. So thank you for letting me know. Oh, I'm getting a little, little misty, misty eyed even thinking about this. All right. So also just a heads up, we've got our teacher training. I can't believe I'm going to say, but our November and December teacher training is almost full. The good thing is Caprice and I just figured out dates for January, February, and March, April. So we're going to keep plowing forward and keep working with teachers and keep bringing our work to other communities. What else? Um, I mentioned the online classes. Oh, we started a Patreon page. Check that out. I don't actually remember. <laughs> Ursula's going to kill me, but I don't remember the the exact URL. So I'll put it in the show notes. So I think that's enough of me talking. So we'll take a super quick break. And when we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Perez. Hi, Marta. Welcome back. <laughs> Hi, Dad. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So when I saw that you had already done some stuff about the science of COVID and its effect on pregnancy, I'm thinking, all right, let's dive into that because I know people are really concerned and I feel like there's there's data out there, but a lot of people don't really know how to read it or understand it. So I'm really excited to talk to you. So thanks for popping back on my pod. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Great. So um, 
Some people might have already heard you from our last podcast together, but if not, can you just tell people a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. My name is Dr. Marta Perez. I am an MD. I am an OBGYN. I am a board certified OBGYN. I worked in full scope OBGYN practice for some time. Now I'm actually working because of location for my husband's job as a laborist, which I work exclusively in the hospital with pregnant, delivering, and in labor and postpartum women. It's also an academic position, so I work with medical students and OBGYN residents. Um, I do a little research as well, and I have a platform on Instagram mostly um, where I educate women about all kind of full-scope women's health with a little bit of a life in medicine and my puppy thrown in there. (laughs) (laughs) You got to have a good puppy shot. It makes everybody smile. All right. So let's jump in and start talking about COVID and pregnancy. Because I know amongst my community, the pregnant and postpartum community, it is definitely a topic that people, they don't really know what's going on. And I know in the beginning, it seems interesting that there wasn't a lot of talk about the difference between non-pregnant people and children, but now we're starting to see a difference. Can you start to talk a little bit, I guess maybe the immune systems and how they react differently with non-pregnant people and children and now pregnant people? Yeah. So I think it's important to kind of frame things in a really big picture and then I'll kind of narrow down. Perfect. So the really big picture is that what the public is experiencing and being frustrated by is how difficult it is to really do quality research The scientific process is one that takes a lot of time and effort and more than people really realize behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, as we're, and how it works too, is we have, we have an idea. We'd like to find an answer. Mostly we don't have the tools to find the perfect answer right away. They just don't exist. So what we try to do is find some answers and get better as we go. Um, so people might be frustrated to say, well, first doctors or data said this, and then doctors and data said that. And it's because we have to like narrow in from these views and build these tools to even collect data that it's actually really difficult to do, especially quickly. Right. (laughs) So, um, I always, you know, tell people just like, when you understand science, you understand that it's going to change and we'll learn more with time. Um, but we just have to do the best we can with the information we have when we get it. So kind of in a, a view of physiology. So one of the reasons I became an OBGYN is because I think it's completely fascinating that pregnancy affects literally every single organ system in a person's body. It affects their heart. It affects their lungs. It affects their GI system. It affects their skin. We get weird skin things in pregnancy. Literally everything has changes to accommodate pregnancy. The immune system is interesting in pregnancy. It's somewhat decreased um, in the second and third trimesters um, in a qualitative way that helps the maternal body not attack uh, the foreign object of the placenta and fetus. It's not a really dramatic decrease, um, and it's only in certain ways the immune system works. So it's not just like, oh, my whole immune system is down. It's just in certain kind of functions. We don't have exact data on like, oh, when is it quote unquote normal again postpartum? It's just not something we really study because the immune system is not really the most important part of infections in pregnant women. It's not decreased enough that 
it's the sole reason that women have different infectious outcomes. It's actually more of the function of the individual systems. So for example, for a respiratory infection, like COVID mostly is, um, and like really commonly the flu is, or other respiratory infections, most of the negative impact is less that the immune system isn't functioning as well as it should be, or in a way that's ideal or something like that. Um, But it's more the fact that the respiratory system has different amounts of reserve and function, especially in late pregnancy, not so much in the first and second trimester, but mostly in the late second or third trimester. Similarly, like to take a just different organ system, pregnant women are a little bit more likely to get kidney infections when they get UTIs. Mm -hmm. And that's less related to the immune system, though it plays a role and more related to the fact that there's a relaxation between like the tube that usually prevents bacteria from getting up there. So there's like a functional aspect related to individual organs. And then there's kind of like a global women's immune systems are different in pregnancy. The benefits of the way the immune system in pregnancy works is that it shares its work, like quote unquote work with the baby. So when we make certain types of antibodies, not all types, but certain types, they cross the placental barrier and the baby can benefit from the same protection the mom's built, which is why flu vaccination in pregnancy is so successful, which is why Tdap vaccination saves infants' lives um, and saves hospital visits because of um, protecting infants from the pertussis. That stays around for a few weeks or months um, just from crossing the placenta, but then we also have reinforcements through breast milk as well. So the antibodies pass through breast milk, and so babies get special um, extra kind of boost of antibodies with breast milk. Um, a little bit different because it has to survive not only passing into maternal breast milk, but the baby's GI system, which we've evolved to do pretty well. Um, but that's just kind of, kind of a secondary and can last longer. So a lot of our, um, successes in terms of maternal public health and infant public health have actually taken advantage of the maternal immune system doing really great things. Um, so we can look at it in like, not like a negative light, but like a, what are some of the problems associated with this, but then how can we use it to really improve health too, which I think is always so interesting. Ken, I think it's interesting that now that you really kind of broke it down, it's not that the immune system is so suppressed because I think people hear, okay, I'm pregnant. My immune system's compromised. And I think compromised as similar to someone like with lupus where it's really like, you know, it's compromised, but not to the extent that we think of people with immune compromised uh, issues in their body. Is that correct? Is yeah. that a way of thinking of it? Yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. And it's also like, it's just the immune system's like just one piece of the whole pregnancy yeah. bubble. Like mm-hmm. the pregnant women have are, you know, nurturing and growing a fetus and it, these changes are more pronounced a little bit later in pregnancy, but it really is, it's not just the immune system. It's also the cardiovascular system and the respiratory system that are different and behave differently when they may face the same type of infection as a non-pregnant person. Plus the fact that not all pregnant women come into or exist in pregnancy without chronic medical conditions or other things they're bringing into the pregnancy from their health. Um, Things that aren't their fault. You know, no one asks to have asthma. Certainly no one asks to be in a community that our country you know, has decided doesn't deserve long-term health care and preventative care um, and experience some of the um, health disparities that exist in our socioeconomic and our population here. Mm-hmm. So um, those things are not the fault of women, but they certainly can be something that changes the way that they respond um, while in pregnancy as well. 
Yes. Can you talk a little about the data and research supporting pregnant people that tend to be more asymptomatic carriers of COVID? Yeah, it's so early for that. That's actually one of the things I'm very interested in that I feel like we don't have an explanation at all for. Okay. Um, or know that it's truly real. So like, like when they talk about kids, like kids are yeah. asymptomatic. So it's kind of in the same, like we think maybe, but there's not a ton supporting this. Yeah. And the only way you find out what, if a population is asymptomatic carriers is by taking a group of people, whether or not they have any symptoms at all, but then narrowing it down to people without symptoms and testing them all and seeing how many are asymptomatically positive. And we're not doing it with that many populations. Um, the professional sports leagues are a population and I don't really know what their data is for their population about asymptomatic carriers. There's also a topic of asymptomatic carrier versus pre-symptomatic, like testing positive before you actually have symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, but then one of the other big populations we're seeing that we're universally testing is a lot of women are being offered or getting universal testing when they come into labor and delivery. Mm -hmm. So we have seen that like another population was people who are scheduled to have surgery. And so those people, you know, have something either like a cancer or a mass or something. Um, and just to take my institution compared to the people having surgery and then the people who are pregnant coming in, we are seeing higher amounts of pregnant women that are asymptomatic as a population compared to other people who are asymptomatic, but having surgery. Um, but we haven't repeated this among like age matched otherwise other women, right? Like we're not taking a group of like 25 to 35, um, non-pregnant women and universally testing them to see how many of them are asymptomatically positive. So we don't really like have, we haven't compared it to other people, especially people just like the pregnant women, just not pregnant, Uh their age and their health status to really know, is it like all people who are like in that childbearing age group have less likely to have symptoms or is it pregnant women in particular? So we just, we don't really know that yet. I find it interesting that it could be possible that pregnant women might have a higher asymptomatic positive rate, but I don't think we know for sure that that's true yet. Okay. And I know that a lot of hospitals are testing people when they go in, like you said, into labor and delivery. What happens with that information? So they, what then will happen with the baby? If someone is asymptomatic, then they find out, oh, through this test that they actually have COVID. What then happens with the baby? Is there separation? Is is there assumed that the baby yeah. has it? Is it passed through the placenta? Um, how is it? Is Great it a- questions. <laughs> Lots of questions. So many, so many things to <laughs> discuss. Okay. First of all, I just want to address like all of our moms out there and all the pregnant moms about like, what can you expect in your in your hospitalization. And there's going to be some regional differences or hospital differences. You can always ask your OB this or ask a representative at the hospital what their policies are. A lot of them have changed over time. So if a friend who delivered, you know, at the height of precautions and lack of data in April may have a different experience than you. But if you're coming into, for example, my hospital, I am in the Midwest, I'm in an urban environment Our infection rate has always been lower than some of the major, major metropolitan areas, but it is growing, you know, in the last few weeks, steadying out, but we're not 
we're not like towards the tail end of things like other big cities were. We kind of had a later onset and a later come down. But what happens is we offer all women um, who are coming to labor and delivery screening. If they accept screening, then the test gets sent out. It used to be rapid. Right now we're running out of rapid tests, so they're taking a little longer, more like 12 to 24 hours. Um, If it's negative, your labor and delivery process is like no different at all. We have many rooms and you can have any one of them except two of them, which are reserved for the positive. Um, and your postpartum course would be normal. You know, our hospital does mostly rooming in. Certainly if your baby needs a procedure or a certain special type of evaluation, or you need for your baby to go to a nursery, there is a small area that can serve as a nursery, but it's not, um, generally not used. Um, most babies room in. If you come back positive, when you initially get your screening, when you come into the hospital, we'll put you in a special room that helps protect everyone from the virus. It's called a negative pressure room. And what it does is basically make try to make sure that air circulation is less likely to have virus in it because it's a little bit of negative pressure. In our hospital, those rooms are a little bit bigger. Um, and we have a certain type of filter if you need the operating room that we'll put in there and then the doors are closed during the procedure. Um, you still have the same nursing care and doctors, et cetera. There, the nurses will be devoted to you. The doctors will use the appropriate personal protective equipment. Um, we will try not to do an aerosolizing procedure, but that's we av- avoid those anyway. They're not common on labor and delivery, so they're not really much to discuss. Um, but one thing would be if things are starting to look like we could have to have a C-section, we would prefer you to have spinal anesthesia because then that prevents everyone from having an exposure to an intubation procedure, which is mm-hmm. aerosolizing. So that's like a collaborative, di- you know, discussion just, um, that we can have. Certainly no one makes you do anything, but that would be a collaborative discussion. Um, when the baby is born, the baby is then considered a person under investigation, right? We don't know if they're positive or negative. We'll touch on what we know about, or don't know what we know and don't know about vertical transmission and, um, and, and, uh, newborns and their positivity and stuff. But what we prefer is that that baby room in with you during the whole stay. Um, and we highly, highly encourage that because we don't want to have to expose other babies in a nursery, even though it's not used all the time, um, to that. And so there is a special procedure room that if your baby did need a procedure or some kind of special test, they could go to so that they're not exposing some babies that need these extra interventions in the, the kind of like nursery treatment area. Um, so there's another special room for that, but overall, I haven't really seen the need for that, most things are done in the room, even like a circumcision, something totally straightforward can be done right in the delivery room uh, by the pediatricians and stuff. So we prefer they room in together in terms of support people. Um, we ask that the support person with the patient who is positive stays the whole time and shelters in place with them during their whole course, um, which um is reassuring to patients that they get their support person the whole time. Um, but you know, of course there's real life. It's hard to like, somebody else has to go take care of your dog at home or your other children. So it also presents its own challenges. Um, and then the, uh, baby and the mom are discharged together during the time that the baby is there in the postpartum area. We encourage moms to wear masks when 
they're breastfeeding and when they're closely interacting with the baby, a lot of hand hygiene, obviously. Um, breastfeeding is great. Um, if pumping will have teach you how to like specialize, kind of clean the pump parts to protect your baby from getting COVID. Usually the babies get tested, but as long as they're not experiencing any symptoms, which usually they don't, um, they'll be allowed to, you know, obviously go home with the mother and don't need any other special types of treatments or anything. So, so it's really not something that's, totally different in a lot of ways besides that the, your doctors may be wearing an extra level of PPE and your room might be a little bit bigger if it's a negative pressure room. But it, if it's not a rapid test, is everyone just getting assumed, what'd you say, 12 to 24 hours? Yeah. So is there, is this just an assumption positive until proven negative? No, it's for asymptomatic people. It's a assumption negative until positive. And I admit like as a healthcare provider myself, who's really looking for my own, looking out for my own health and my patient's health, it has been more frustrating that instead of like 15 minutes, it's hours because I sort of in my PPE assume positive. So I put the extra layers of PPE on until we know a result. Um, but if someone comes in and say, Oh, I can't taste and smell and I'm having a cough, we actually send the rapid test for those people because we really need to know right away what room we want to put them right, in. Right, absolutely. So yeah, and protect our other oh, patients. So if people have frustrating symptoms, they for you get guys. rapid. And we'll hopefully go back to the rapid test. There's kind of just changes in protocols um, and changes in improving like our. Um, there's like complex lab. I'm not a lab technician or a lab <laughs> medicine person, but there's some complex stuff with in terms of like upgrading the potential to do more rapid tests at a time. So they have to kind of like take one aspect of it offline sort of to like bring it back even stronger type of thing. So there's that kind of stuff happening behind the scenes. So hopefully the lack of rapid tests is a temporary thing. But, you know, some labor and deliveries may have not had access to rapid tests maybe still, or maybe they never did. You know, we had them for a while, but and I think they're coming back. But So I guess good for listeners beforehand, well beforehand, check in with your hospital and find out what their guidelines are and yeah. find out what, what can they expect when they walk in? Do they have rapid tests? Do they not? You know, just so you get a sense of what's yeah. really going to happen. And if you're someone who has a delivery date planned, either because Um, there's a C-section planned or you've chosen an induction or you have a type of medical condition or complication that requires an induction at a certain time, um, any of those things, um, we do ask that you get tested within three days of coming in. So then that's nice because coming in the door of patients like, oh, I have results from two days ago and they're negative. And then, so that's like kind of an extra layer of reassurance. We don't have to retest when you come to the hospital, if you've had one within a few days. That's good. So it might be something for people to consider. All right. So yeah. I want to pop back to really breaking down the different systems in, I got a little sidetracked. That happens to me. You say something, I'm like, oh, let's go in this direction. I'm going to pull us back to the effects on pregnancy. So we talked about the immune system is slightly changed, but really all the systems, as you mentioned, during pregnancy are affected just from being pregnant. You have the respiratory the cardiovascular. So let's talk respiratory because respiratory system changes a lot during pregnancy. If you can start to talk about that and then really the effects of COVID with that. And also I remember uh, reading something about the CDC guidelines are different with COVID and pregnancy. If you can kind of jump into that whole barrel. (laughs) Yeah. So without going into too much like detail. And also I have to like fact check the exact words, um, for some of this, cause it's, you know, a Friday and I'm a little brain dead, but, um, (laughs) 
but basically I may make like a little post about this. So, um, it's actually a great idea for a post of all of the respiratory changes in pregnancy, but basically pregnant women are just a little bit more vulnerable to respiratory compromise during pregnancy. They have a little bit less room for their lungs to fully expand because late in the third trimester, they have a big baby in their abdomen. So their thorax kind of has a little less room. They need to maintain a higher level of um, oxygen saturation and getting rid of carbon dioxide than the non-pregnant state because they're not only supporting their own tissues, they're supporting the uterus and the placenta. So that's kind of like the biggest, some of the two biggest changes. And I'll maybe do a post coming up and then I'll, I'll tag you in it um, so your followers can see as well with like the more in-depth because I know a lot of my followers and your followers as well will want even more detail. Um, but just to be brief, those are the big changes. So um, what that means is that they're just a little bit more susceptible to a critical, to more serious illness and or critical illness um, during pregnancy. So um, I think what you wanted to get to next and <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong or just uh, revert me, but at first in the pandemic, it seemed like pregnant women had the same kind of disease severity and mortality that non-pregnant adults had. Yes. And so, you know, I, I presented that information to my followers and discussed it around my colleagues. And when I presented to my followers, I said, look, this is the data we have right now. It's not great data. It's very early. And to me, to be completely honest, this doesn't totally make sense because it, that would mean it's different than all the other respiratory viruses we know. Like pregnant women have a higher morbidity and mortality from the flu every single year, every single year. And they did see in also very small studies of SARS and MERS that pregnant women had more negative health effects than um, non-pregnant adults. So I found some of that initial data a little bit like, huh, that's interesting, but like we got to see what happens. Um, maybe it's a little reassuring for now, but I'm not, you know, it wouldn't be surprise me if when we get more data, we don't find that. So a few weeks ago, a large study kind of came out of the CDC reporting data when the data from hospitals was still going to the CDC, which it's not anymore. Um, the strengths of that, the hospital data is no longer going to the CDC. No. Okay. Yeah. It's a very troubling, um, one of many very troubling things that has happened in this pandemic uh, out of political concerns. Um, so how are they from, getting their data? How's the CDC so getting updates? Sorry, totally the CDC isn't anymore. Totally took me by yeah. We'll keep going with your question, but how are, how yeah. are guidelines being... I don't know if I want to go down this road, but like, how are guidelines being made if hospital data is not getting reported? Yeah, it's a huge challenge, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We won't, we won't. So they're not getting the hospital <laughs> updates. I mean, there's, you know, other types of reporting that might still go to the CDC, like state and stuff, but there's a lot of changes that are not necessarily going to help us better manage this pandemic. Okay. So um, I took a step around, pulls yeah. back, we'll pull it, we're no, going back. Okay. <laughs> totally. Okay. So, um, but from data we did have, they were able, the good news is that it was, the number was really big of, um, cases and numbers and hospitalizations, but there were some, major downsides of the data as well, um, which I'll talk about in one second as my caveat. So um, what that data showed is that pregnant women who are positive for COVID had a higher chance of being hospitalized and of needing critical care services 
than non-pregnant adults who were also females and of the same age, which is a great, it's good to compare those two groups. That Mm -hmm. is very helpful. But there were some caveats to it. Um, One caveat is that for when they just searched for all females within a certain age range, about, I think it was around 70%, it was definitely more than half of the data didn't even specify if the person, the incident case was pregnant or not. So they had to kind of, you know, throw that out. So we could have missed a lot of data just from the different reporting strategies being um, inconsistent. Um, And then it still left a big group, um, but you could have, you know, left some either pregnant women out there that we weren't able to analyze or um, misanalyze some people as like not pregnant when they were pregnant. But um, so that's one caveat. The second caveat is that we don't, it had COVID status and hospitalization, but didn't necessarily have the cause. So it could have been an asymptomatic person coming in for, you know, or excuse me, instead of an asymptomatic person, sorry, I would have caught that. And that would have been an interest, like an outcome. They would have been hospitalized. Yeah. Two things, an asymptomatic person who was positive via universal screening, but came in only for their delivery. That kind of falsely makes it seem like they were at higher risk for hospitalization when the same asymptomatic other person may not have known and stayed at home. So we don't know truly if all the hospitalized, like what they were hospitalized for. Mm -hmm. Same thing with a mildly symptomatic person. If you just have some mild symptoms and if you're pregnant, you might be able to stay home except, oh wait, you're in labor right now. So you have to go, you're going to the hospital because you're in labor, but your COVID is well controlled and mild and you do okay. And so does your baby and you don't need critical care. So it doesn't, it didn't really um, narrow down some big questions, but overall it was a lot of data and it really probably led us down the conclusion. I think physiologically, most obstetricians um, believed is probably more likely, which is because of the changes to the cardiorespiratory um, and other changes in pregnancy, pregnant women are probably higher risk for more serious illness with COVID than their same age-matched healthy controls. But the search for more data and better data goes on. Uh Um, Going to be a little bit harder with the CDC not reporting data, but, you know, I know that a lot of physicians and academic institutions themselves are trying to pursue research and collect you know, without the data CDC data and collect the data on their own. It's just kind of stinks that instead of strengthening the quality of data, like providing a universal reporting system that always had pregnancy status and gestational age um, of pregnancy, like on these forms that went to the CDC, that could have really upped the quality of the next round of data, you know, strengthening the CD, the information the CDC was getting instead of taking it away. That's a bit heartbreaking. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We were talking about the respiratory system. I want to talk about the vascular system. So after we come back, let's talk about the vascular effects of pregnant people. And I find it so fascinating and the placenta. All right, so we'll take a quick break. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're back. So let's stay with our systems. We talk respiratory, we talked immune. Let's talk about the vascular effects on pregnant people and the placenta with COVID. Because did you say, can COVID pass through the placenta? Do we know this? Yeah. So that's something that is a really hot topic. There's been several research studies that have come out, two of them in the last few weeks that I just reviewed prior to our conversation. Um, So basically, so COVID, what we're really seeing is it's a, can be a respiratory virus, but it's also a virus that affects the very small blood vessels that are all over our bodies. Um, And so some of the effects of COVID are not necessarily the breathing, but impacts on the heart, um, impacts on our blood vessels that make our blood more likely to have blood clots and things like that. And people of all ages are experiencing that. A syndrome unique to children um, has been identified that's sort of like Kawasaki's. Um, So in pregnant women, we have one very, very special vascular bed where our blood interacts with the fetal blood supply at the placental surface. So we want to know, does how does coronavirus affect that vascular bed and the baby that is growing inside of there? So kind of two things to think about. One is the topic of vertical transmission. So there are some viruses when we have them as pregnant people, they, we experience them, but it really can't get through that door to affect the baby. Things like the flu back. We don't think that flu crosses the placenta at all. Now, will the maternal health have an impact on child health in the flu? A mild case is mild. A more severe case may have outcomes. Sure. But we don't think it crosses. And that's compared to some other viruses that do cross. Things like CMV, rubella, some of the infections we care about in pregnancy and try to prevent in pregnant women. So the question is, does, does this virus cross? And why that matters is because... It can have a few, it can have different effects during different times of gestation. So some viruses, when they are happen very early in pregnancy, things like the Zika virus, they can cause birth defects. Things like microcephaly is the big thing associated with Zika and some like intellectual disability. Later in pregnancy, those changes are less likely because the baby is formed more completely. And so it's not really a birth defect. Um, but then can an old, more formed baby in the third trimester have negative effects from a virus. So for COVID, the baby doesn't need lungs at all. It is totally subsisting off of your circulation, does not need to exchange oxygen on its own at all. But would it affect like vascular disease, et cetera, et cetera? Um, then the second really important part is, will the baby be healthy at delivery um, You know, if the transmission is via the placenta versus to a positive mother. I think this is a little less important. If you, let's just say you get COVID when you're 38 weeks and then you deliver the next week, you're still symptomatic. Since we're not doing, I don't think really anywhere is doing, although I'm not sure of certainly any, every single labor and delivery in the country, but I haven't heard much anymore about separation. So if we're not going to separate the mom and the baby, does it really matter if the baby gets it through the placenta or gets it through interacting with the mom. I mean, all moms are going to try to do the best hygiene they can to prevent infecting their baby, but it 
becomes a little bit less important. So we're really worried about the early and the birth defects and then the effects on the vasculature. So there's a few studies out where we're looking at placentas, but in order to look at a placenta, it has to be delivered. So it's exposed to some other tissue before it gets to the lab, right? Either the inside of the vagina, if in a cesarean, like other blood or the skin, even though it's cleaned off. So it's a placenta is never just in isolation. An early study of just a few placentas saw that like maybe there were viruses in the membrane between the maternal and the fetal side. But in order to examine that, you cut placentas, like you slice them into very thin so they can be looked at under the microscope. Mm -hmm. So is that a function of the preparation of the study? Um, And so two more recent um, studies that came out that looked for COVID really saw them at the maternal side of the circulation, but not the fetal side. So it seems like vertical transmission based on there's, and there's a few other studies. And like I said, one or two say maybe it's on the fetal side. A few more say we can't see it on the fetal side, um, just to kind of summarize um, some of them. So it seems like the virus isn't passing to the fetal side while women are pregnant. We don't really know. All these studies are really small, a really big thing. And new, too. I mean, like, let's let's put this in perspective. You know, usually when we talk about studies, like, there's a lot of data and often, you know, the control group and like, we really don't have, we've really, you know, yeah. when did this come out in January? Like we're just starting. It really hit the U S and maybe. And there's so much like, we don't know too. February. Like yeah. it could depend on the amount of viral load, like a low viral load may not go over, but maybe it's, if it's very high, it could. We also don't have a ton of information by different times in pregnancy. So most of the placentas we're looking at are women who delivered their babies at full term. Right. Because so otherwise we don't it would have, have been uh, either a miscarriage exactly. or, you know, a stillbirth or something, you know, right. no one's really volunteering their 20 week placenta because you can't. So, <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So we don't have a lot of data about first and second trimester. Um, and, and if an infection then could maybe be more likely to pass than an infection later. Um, so that's all stuff we'll kind of learn more. The second thing is the vasculitis. So your baby depends on your blood flow in order to have its own, you know, to thrive itself. So with COVID being a vascular, creating vascular effects, being almost like a vascular disease um, itself, is there an effect on the maternal fetal placental circulation circulation unit? A study that came out maybe two or three months ago did see some changes there at the vascular bed, and there were changes that mimic some of the ones we also see in things like preeclampsia, which is a vascular disease in pregnancy. Um, and so that was like really interesting during reading that study. I was fascinated by it and it brings up like, you know, if this is a little earlier on when these networks are being established, would that be harmful to the pregnancy? Things like the first, second trimester, would this put the pregnancy at higher risk of some kind of compromise, either the baby not getting what it needs and like being, having a growth restriction process or, um, even a stillbirth or something like that. You know, it it generated a lot of these questions. One of the studies that just that I just reviewed um, from the last few weeks looked at the placenta placentas of women who were positive, and then placentas of women I think six months before April, so like in November before the pandemic, and looked at the features of the placenta, and they didn't see differences in the amount of those um, changes. Um, that had been reported in another study. So it is, yeah, another small study, but at least is like a little bit reassuring that these things can happen. I don't, I think that the authors would say this doesn't rule out that these vascular changes, um, are happening to 
to anybody, but it is reassuring that maybe it's not happening to most women or on a level during the third trimester that makes it very easy to find and significantly different from these women who had babies before the um, pandemic. So I think the whole, how does it affect the placenta and does it cross the placenta question is very much in motion. We have some answers for the third trimester, but I think we're really in the dark about the first and second trimester. Um, so it just comes back to, we want to learn more. We want to empower pregnant women, but at this point we're still, although we're learning more, we're still saying, you know, wear a mask, socially distance, hand hygiene, try to avoid exposure as much as you can. Um, just because we're still in this. We don't know. Yeah. 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 So I also, I read an interesting article, you might've seen it. It recently came out where there's actually been less premature babies during COVID. Have you seen any data on this? And do you have any yes. idea why it's happening? I thought that was fascinating. So, I'm like, this is good. We don't want preemies. <laughs> I did. I know. I thought it was really interesting. And actually I've been trying to like stalk some neonatologists at a good time to like talk to them about it. Um, but we've been so busy on labor and delivery with like their real work. I haven't gotten a sense of what in our community we've seen. Um, but I did do a little bit more of just like talking to some of the other OBs about it and stuff. And when I first read the article, which is a New York times article, it mentions some places in Europe and it mentions some, um, neonatologists in the U S and in there kind of, there's a neonatologist who said, Oh yeah, we're seeing a decrease. And another neonatologist that's like, we're not really seeing a decrease. And I immediately read the article and I really, as a provider, it's, it's like, you know how there's like, once you start seeing something, you see it in every single thing all the time now. Yeah. For me, because of the communities that I've worked in as a doctor, almost con- like consistently since I've been a doctor and almost nearly exclusively in some parts of my um, career, when I read the article, all that jumped out to me was health disparities that people who had universal basic income, who have pre- low stress, they have adequate nutrition, they have access to physicians, they have higher health quality and access, may have, yeah, a little less, not stress, because I wouldn't say this time of COVID is less stress, but maybe less physical demands and maybe less financial stress and possibly less emotional stress than women who are you know, working a job that got eliminated or working an essential job where they're working harder um, with exposures, have children who ate at school twice a day, but now have no school and they're having to feed, like feed more mouths on the same income for more meals, things like that. And I think that this data will be really interesting to look at because what I suspect is that we'll see that people who have access and who are, um, you know, I think we'll see sociodemographic differences and they'll further show us how health disparities in our country are being exacerbated by this virus. I know we, we know this totally outside of pregnancy and birth. I mean, we're seeing it in the infection and death rates mm-hmm. so strongly that are hitting um, minority populations, black populations, Hispanic populations so much harder. And I think that that will be reflected in obstetric communities as well. That's like all I could think about when I read the article. I'm so curious to see what will happen, but hopefully it will spur people to say, oh, everyone deserves a certain level of medical care in our country because nobody should be experiencing 
all these higher rates of negative outcomes is my hope that that's what this pandemic brings us. But I, I completely agree. When I saw that, I thought immediately, I'm like, well, people are not commuting. They're not is physically, you know, I just think about Again, I'm just going with my lens of like how exhausting it is not pregnant to, I live outside the city. I would schlep into the city. I'd be on my feet. I'd do that. Now I'm home. It's a little easier. So I just thought like those that don't have to put that physical exertion out that are pregnant, I'm not surprised. But then like you said, the flip side is, but some people, essential workers still have to do it. The stress level, I 100% agree. It really shows those that can take better care of themselves and those that don't have the means and the stress of that anxiety of like, great, now what am I going to do? I completely agree. So I'd be curious to see how this evolved, which also brings me to, let's talk about how the data it has evolved. It's been, it hasn't been that long of a time. So what, have you noticed anything that has really changed when first, like, this is what we see in pregnant people. And now a few extra months into it, this new data is evolving. Yeah. The best the best data I've seen and the, the kind of the trend I've seen that's been most exciting and good is that we really have seen some reassuring, um, data coming out about the babies and their infection rates, their positivity rates, um, being low babies are tested at about 24 hours of life and they have a much lower rate than we sort of expected, which is great. I haven't seen a lot of data about, um, young infant, you know, morbidity and mortality from COVID. I'm sure it's happening, but I haven't seen really scary stuff there. Um, and so the, you know, the WHO, ACOG, CDC have always said through this pandemic that if maternal and infant um, like separation is recommended. It's always within a woman's right to say no and to not be separated from her infant. And it making that decision about separation should be a collaborative discussion between the provider and the infant. And what, so that was really open, but the American Academy of Pediatrics had actually recommended separation. Um, that has now changed. So the American Academy of Pediatrics just last week, no longer is recommending separation it is something that's like on the table and can be discussed, but it's not something that's their outright recommendation. Um, and so that's a, that those changes, which are so important to family health, maternal and infant bonding, the establishment of breastfeeding. breastfeeding absolutely. Like, yes. I'm so excited that kind of like our data is leading us to a place that feels a lot more reassuring and feels both emotionally and physically better for families. So that's one of the things that I, you know, it, there's still way more data to come about ways we can do even better, but with hand hygiene, mask wearing, being really careful, it's nice to see that we're headed in a direction that gives parents a little bit more reassurance at the time of having a baby Yeah, and to know during that, that hospital stay and stuff. And to know yeah. that separation's not recommended anymore. I can't imagine giving birth during this very overwhelming time, being in a hospital setting, which can be overwhelming for a lot of people, and then not have your baby with you. Yeah. I mean, it's just mind boggling. So I'm really glad that that has shifted. All right. So we've talked a lot about systems. I do have one question. We talked a little immune system, but more during pregnancy. Can we talk a little bit about 
postpartum. I know you mentioned like we don't have a specific time, like six months, your immune system's back, but at what time postpartum does someone's risks actually of COVID complications decrease? Or is there no data? There might not be any data. We don't, yeah, we don't know. People of all ages and health backgrounds have a variety of outcomes when it comes to COVID. So we just, we just don't really know yet. You know, a perfectly healthy person can get really sick and not make it from COVID. Someone with a bunch of health conditions can end up doing fine. It just, hopefully we know a little bit better, but we'll probably never truly, to be honest with you, know fully the answer to that. I mean, we get the flu every single year and we don't necessarily have that specific data because everyone does differently with the flu every year as well. Yeah. So my hope is that we have some extra layers of protection. We have better strategies to avoid COVID and we end up seeing rates go down and this becomes something that in two years from now, by the time your child's a toddler, you barely think about. Um, but oh, that seems I, so for long. now, this is our reality. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, what is one tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer new or expectant parents? We'll be right back. Okay. So parents are hearing this. Pregnant people are hearing, oh, really dealing with a lot. What is something that you'd like to offer them that may put their mind at ease? So I really think that living in the moment and doing the best you can with the resources you have right now and just repeating that makes you a good parent. And I can't stress enough how much your OB is here for you and mental health care providers are here for you as well. Um, This is still, I saw an OB that I followed posted the other day that it's all about perspective she asked a first-time parent, what's this all been like as you did the third trimester in delivery? She goes, well, I don't really know any different. Mm. So, you know, I could think about all the things I don't get or are different for me, but I'm just trying to enjoy the process. And isn't that kind of a beautiful way to look at it? And another parent told her, well, I'm glad that I had, that this wasn't my first time and that I have, you know, that it's my second time and I know better what to expect. So it's all about perspective. You are in the place you are now and you just got to make the most of, of the resources you have and try to make it enjoyable. If it's too hard to make it enjoyable, mental health care is there for you. Yes. And yoga, which is part of and yoga, <laughs> which is a part of mental health care. I mention it all the time. Yay. All right. Where can people find your work? Um, they can find me on Instagram at Dr. Marta Perez, Dr. Marta Perez. And through my Instagram, it's really like my homepage, but there's landing site for my website. And then hopefully I'll develop some even more resources in the next few weeks or months. So I don't really know where those will go yet. Wonderful. I can't thank you enough because I really, I appreciate that you dug in. I tried to look at the data and really try to make sense of it. And then I'm like, this is a little too much for my brain. And so then when I read that you had done that work, I'm like, let's reach out to Marta again. Yeah. And I have, um, I have lots of highlights on a whole bunch of different topics. Um, for education, but I have two highlights on COVID. So if you start at the beginning of the first one, you can kind of see the, like the stampede towards more knowledge. Um, starting in March, going through the summer. And I'll, um, I'll do another based on the prep I did for our podcast. I'm going to put up another post with some recent updates too. That's exciting. And the more I dig, I follow you obviously. So the more I see you do, maybe I'll, you might get another email from you. So like, I think we need a follow up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's been great. It's been so great chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. Looking forward to the next time we talk. Yes. All right. Be well. (laughs) Okay. Bye. 
This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.